This episode brought in part by Serverless Guru and made possible by the ever-growing and passionate Serverless community. Whether you're just starting your serverless journey, halfway through migrating your entire legacy system, or are an AWS hero, Serverless Guru can help you migrate, build applications, and train your team on best practices. With a team of front-end, back-end, and full-stack cloud developers, Serverless Guru can get you where you want to be. Welcome to the Talking Serverless Podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Jones, joined today by Marcia Vichaba, a senior developer advocate at AWS, and a host of FUBAR, a YouTube channel where Marcia publishes content every week related to serverless and cloud. Marcia has been developing professionally for 15 years in the software industry and has a deep knowledge of building applications in the cloud and DevOps processes. How are you doing today, Marcia? Hey, hello. Thank you for inviting me. I'm good. I'm very happy. I just have a little fight on Twitter, so I'm ready to go. <laughs> yeah, I remember you. You told me about this just a moment ago. And so, yeah, I, I think it's it's a very, very interesting. So I guess, yeah, it's to kick it off, like, how is everything going for you in the start of the year? How is just in general? How's it going? I'm good. I'm I'm really happy. I Due to the pandemic, I have the opportunity to move roles. So now I'm an online developer advocate. Uh, and for me, that's the perfect role because I love to create content online. So basically, my job is to sit in the studio, record videos and podcasts and <laughs> have fun. So I cannot complain. Um, it's been it's been a good start of the year. After reInvent, I took some holidays. So now I'm full of energy to keep on working and, and putting more content out. Yeah, when you say that, like you're you're in the studio and you're, is that for FUBAR or is that for AWS? Well, I'm a developer advocate and our job as developer advocates is to deliver content and talk with the community and create relationships with different members of the community and try to help to bring the cloud and all this noise that comes from the services, that there's so many services coming all the time and all these new features into something that is more comprehensive for normal human beings. Uh, so basically, I, my job is to create content for that. I write a lot, I do podcasts and I do YouTube. So all the type of content that I produce nowadays is fully 100% online. I'm missing TikTok. I should do some dancing. But besides that, I, I do online content. So I have a small studio where I record my videos. And now I'm talking to you for the podcast. Um, yeah, so it's part of my show, the full bar channel nowadays. Yeah, so when you say that uh, lots of noise, you've been writing content for quite a while. How has, have you gained any insights around how to write the best version of an article or how have you grown basically in content creation? And have you learned anything from that? Oh, I learned a lot. I started last year around October to write in the news blog from AWS, the one that is run by Chef Bar. And I think that for me was been one of the biggest achievements in my AWS career because I'm such a fan of Chef Bar. Since day one, I started looking at AWS. His blogs always really talk to me because he has this approach to be very personal, like with tutorials and hands-on. I'm a type of person that I'm very bad at reading documentation. I like to do things. So when you give me a tutorial on how to do something, I will do it and then I will break it. And so for me, when Chef invited me to write in his blog, I was like, wow, really? <laughs> Is that really happening? So I learned a lot writing there because we have a whole system in place to write blogs. It's not like when you're writing on your own blog that nobody's reviewing or, and you're working on your own. Here we are writing first on content that nobody saw before. So that's super cool. We have to work with the services teams. And usually we are the first maybe customers the service team has. So we are seeing the feature the first time from an outsider's perspective. So trying to understand what the feature does and and how to explain it to people that are not super involved with the feature is always super fun. And creating the first demos and tutorials and trying the service and give it feedback to the service teams is super eye-opener. So 
When you work in this type of blogs, there is a lot of moving parts. We have copywriting in place. So we have a person that is reviewing that our English is not bad. And my English tends to be pretty bad because uh, I'm not a native speaker. So I make a lot of mistakes. But that's not the important thing when you're writing. It's more about telling the story. And that's why the copywriter is there to to help me, for example, to create better English. (laughs) But the story is mine at the end of the day. And then I have a lot of tools in place when, when it comes for writing. For example, one thing I love to do is to put all my blog posts in poly and listen to it. I think that helped me a lot to understand if the text makes sense. And the flow makes sense. It's like somebody's reading to you your own text and it's you pay more attention to each individual word and how the poses are. And now that Polly has these super neural voices that they sound like real humans reading text to you. It's like amazing. And you can really notice a lot of errors in the flow on, on, on the story and, and things don't make sense. Uh, so for me, that was one of the most interesting things when writing. And then the Amazon culture is all about writing. It's one of the key values on on the Amazon culture to write. So there is a lot of resources inside the company to improve your writing skills. So I've been taking a lot of those internal courses to, to how to give a more concise message when you try to write and think we are so used to to try to put a lot of complicated words and, and go around in circles. At least that was my experience when coming from school. The more complicated and longer, the better. It sounds more important, but when you are writing technical documentation or you're writing for others to give the point the simpler, the crispier, it's better. And a lot of people that read are not native English speakers. So you also, the simpler you write, the more people will be able to read that article. Yeah, no, this is super interesting because I haven't heard of, about the culture around writing at AWS and and how it's kind of pushed. So it's, it's very cool to hear that there's lots of processes and copywriting and all sorts of stuff around that. Yeah. The, um, the copy and the processes are related to the blog post, but the writing culture is something very uh, Amazonian. Okay. And so if you had to, I'm sure you probably know. So like, what is the benefit to a company when they encourage their people to write? Uh, Yeah. What is, what is the benefit? Well, it has many benefits. I think the, the biggest benefit is that it's more inclusive because at least when you go to a typical Amazon meeting, the first thing that will happen is that everybody will get the document to read. So it's not like someone standing in front presenting something, everybody will get a document to read and you can read it on your own time, in your own space. So everybody can take time to understand the concepts in the way that they understand the concepts the best. Because sometimes when somebody is standing and presenting, you have really to go through all the information as fast or as slow as the person that is presenting with the ways that that person is presenting. But when you have the text in front, then all the information is written down and everybody can quote the text and start giving their opinions about the text. So it becomes very interesting discussion. And well, now online, we are using all these virtual tools to give feedback and to improve the documents and whatever you do, you write it down. So also there is a lot of records and things and projects and whatever you had in your head. So I love the writing culture. I'm I'm a very organized person, so I write everything. So for me, going to a company that really embraces writing is is perfect. <laughs> yeah, I, it's a good point around the uh, having the document in the meetings. I've I've been on a lot of meetings where it's just somebody going a hundred miles per hour and no documents or no no way for anybody to have access to that slideshow ahead of time, and so. It's just how fast can your brain process and hopefully that presenter will stop. When you have that document in front of you, is it, is it kind of like you show up to the meeting, everybody has a document in front of them, there's somebody that presents and then people just go through the document and just like call out if they need, if they want to stop. Yeah. And documents have different levels of depth. So you can have the document with what you want to present, but then you can always have the appendix with more data or anecdotes uh, of things that you want to go more deep. So, so many times we go to a presentation that is full of data and everybody falls asleep. Nobody 
can't understand all that data, but if you in the when you are writing the the, the story or the document, you write a story and then you can accompany that story with a particular data on how that is like coming to the numbers because Amazon is a data-driven company, then people can get the data without really needing to sit down and, <laughs> and listen to that information. So I think that's also very valuable. And more if you cannot listen to numbers for two hours, like I cannot do that, but I really like watching and looking at tables and graphs and things like that because I'm very visual. Yeah, so I guess um, I guess in both the articles and probably your YouTube videos, there's kind of a flow that you've probably developed around how the best kind of flow, at least for you and, and measuring your audience of how they perceive that um, information. So I guess, how do you strike that balance between loading it full of data and like technical jargon versus like telling the high level story and uh, potentially, yeah, how do you, how do you structure it? I think that's a really hard thing. And when you're writing for others, I think the most important thing for me is to imagine what your audience looks like, what kind of people are looking at your content or reading your articles, because that will help you to talk in the right language. Because at least I imagine that the people watching my videos in, in Fubar Serverless are developers with some kind of level of experience. So I talk to them like if I will be talking to me. Like I try to uh, sometimes if it's a topic I have covered like 20 times, I use more AWS jargon and I talk like I'm learning this thing and this is how I would like to hear it. Sometimes when there is a new topic, I go more for developer concepts that are outside the AWS ecosystem, but still there are maybe advanced concepts for somebody that is totally new to programming because I think, it's very hard to reach everybody. <laughs> so I think that's one of the most important things, at least for me, to try to reach an audience that it's um, I define it. <laughs> and, and the same for the blog post. I, I try to think who is the person's reading and, and try to write for them. So most of the content I produce is for developers because that's kind of what I am. And, and I always want to write and, or create the content that I would love to read. So it's like, if I will find this um, document like three years ago, I will be so happy because I will not have gone through the process of learning this from collecting it from 27 different places. And that's how I create my talks and how I create all my content. So yeah, no, that's, that's, uh, it's very interesting. This kind of I, the idea of matching your audience is really important. And the, the fact that you've recognized that like your audience our developers, so you kind of talk to yourself, makes perfect sense. Um, well, I don't know who my audience like is in the sense of usually you create content and then at least for YouTube, for example, YouTube will show that content to people that kind of watch your content. So at the end of the day, I'm pretty sure that everybody watching my content is a developer and every most of them are around my age, a little bit younger, because YouTube will show me that stage a, a little bit older. So I kind of, I think I'm hitting that type of audience. But when you segment your audience so much, then you will not grow as fast. So maybe if I will be doing like super getting started things with JavaScript, then I will be like having hundreds of thousands of subscribers. But I pick a niche, like the serverless, more advanced kind of topics. So the growth of my channel and all my content is really tied to the growth of serverless. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm I'm in the same boat. So <laughs> exactly, but I think there is a space for everything, and 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 I don't do it for the numbers. I do it because I love it. So if I will be building basic JavaScript things, I will get so bored. But when I go into trying to figure out how to do this with Aurora serverless, like the video like launched today, or how to play with a new feature or explore, I don't know, Grafana or things like that is so much fun. <laughs> yeah. And this brings up a really interesting point, which is like, uh, like high growth versus like slow, sustainable growth. And like, also like not sacrificing like your actual passion just for like views. I've had conversations with people that are also in the serverless space and they've kind of seen exactly what you mentioned, where it's like, if you make a intro to JavaScript video, you could get a hundred thousand views or, or something. Right. But if you make some like deep dive into like, you know, serverless framework or some service on AWS, 
it may only be like hundreds to like a few thousand. So like, I guess, like, what are your thoughts on that? Like, uh, do you more go towards the slow, sustainable growth in your specific niche? Or do you we go can towards... talk about marketing if you want? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. There is, there is this concept of the funnel on, uh, again, let's go back to YouTube. That is a platform that, that I know quite well, but I think this applies to any, any platform. So uh, you have the funnel. So you have the top of the funnel. And that's the content that is very searchable and is more trendy. And there is where you need to define what you would like to people find you for. And here is where uh, you have the option. I will make a JavaScript tutorial. But the problem is that the more you go into the funnel, then maybe that audience is not interested in the rest of the funnel. So for example, for my content, that will be getting started with Amplify or getting started with CDK or getting started with IAM permissions, something that is kind of aligned to my content, but still something that people will search. Then you have the middle of the funnel and those are shorter videos or shorter posts that are very clear, like a solution to a very specific problem. And then you have the bottom of the funnel and that's for your hardcore fans. In my content, for example, those are my hour interview with uh, Jan Q, for example, I have last week. I will have another hour interview with Julian Simon talking about machine learning. They are long format for my audience that loves to sit and hear me and my guest for one hour or more. <laughs> I know those videos will not get a lot of views, but the core of my audience will enjoy them a lot and they will learn a lot of really new things out of them. So I think it's very important when you're working with content to have a strategy on how people will find you, how people will stay in your content. So if not, you will have empty subscribers if you create a very trendy video that is very viral. You capture a lot of people, but then there is nothing else for them. Or then you will make content that you hate because it's mm. not fun. <laughs> yeah, so talking about this is really interesting. Your content strategy, how do you balance between top of the funnel versus mid funnel versus like lower funnel content? Well, I think it's a balance on how much cool things I want to share. <laughs> So I don't have a clear strategy and definition on that. So I, I try to see if I have some videos that are bringing a lot of people, they are good. And I have a lot of cool other things to do. I might do the other things for a while. Then if I see that the top of the funnel is getting colder, then I might do some videos in there. So for me, it's very organic, very casual. I'm not an organization. <laughs> so I take it I take it very casually. But I try not to put a lot of long format content, for example, because I know that's something that will will take a lot of time for me, for example, to put out, but it doesn't get the subscribers and it doesn't get the amount of watch time that YouTube likes. So you have to also play with the algorithm of the platform that you're working with. <laughs> okay. And yeah, that that's uh, the, the algorithm is like mm. a whole rabbit hole in itself. Um, monster. <laughs> the monster, exactly. But I guess like dialing to like a more general question, it's like, what led you to starting the Food Bar channel? How has it impacted your career? Um, and how has the channel grown? Well, I think the story of the Food Bar channel is like, for me, was a life-changing moment in general. It was 2017? Uh, yeah, or 16. I don't remember anymore. It's been so long. But I was working on, on, on a company and we were building this type of Netflix for cartoons. So I started my channel in, in 2016, so it's quite a long time. Uh, just check. And, and we were building this Netflix for cartoons, and we needed to re-architect it. And I always tinker with technology. I've been developing code since I have six years, and I've been a coder all my life, so I love tinkering with code. I didn't have kids by then, so it was I have a lot of time to play with things. So by that time, when we were re-architecting this software, I, I, I was already familiar with Lambda and, and serverless. It was very new. Basically, it's 2016 we are talking, so there was not much out there. And, and I brainwashed my, the architect of, and, and the boss that we had in then to use uh, serverless for this project. And he said yes, and basically my team was clueless about serverless. Nobody knew anything. And in Finland, people take a lot of time off and, and also private life is very encouraged. So it was very hard to get the whole team in meeting 
for four hours or three hours to explain these serverless concepts to them. So what I did is I opened a YouTube channel, I started throwing content there. <laughs> and that's how it started. It was just for me and my team. <laughs> and then I went to this conference. By that time, I had like 50 subscribers from which were my team and my mom. And I went to this conference, the serverless, uh, serverless conference in London. And I was walking around and then one person said, oh, you're the Fuburger. And I was like, who knows me? Who is this person? <laughs> it was Danilo Potia, developer advocate for serverless. And he knew me and he said, oh, yeah, the whole serverless team was watching your content. I was like, you know, I have this huge imposter syndrome. Like, what the hell? <laughs> How people on AWS are watching my content? <laughs> this is like, no, my content is crap. <laughs> and he was like, no, it's really good. And I was like, oh, really? <laughs> and first there, everything started to change. And, and I started, by then, I was not having a strategy or any kind. I, I was just putting random videos on, on YouTube just for my team. And then I started to put videos more consistently because I noticed people were watching and I got invited to start doing public speaking. And it was like a snowball. By one year later, I was uh, announced an AWS serverless hero and Chef Bar retweeted something I did and growth started to happen. And I was like, what the hell? <laughs> I was not expecting this. And, and the channel started growing and it started taking off. People started talking about the videos I was making and, and I got super excited. So I started posting every week <laughs> and that led me to my career in AWS. When I went on maternity leave and I started thinking also, I, I built my own startup, my own co small company doing content creation and, and, and consultancy. AWS approached me like, oh, you should come and join our team. We have a Nordic position. And I was like, oh, I want to be an entrepreneur. But then they offer me the dream job, you know. For me, this is the perfect job because I can reach so much people and I can, I think the cloud is this tool that really democratize uh, infrastructure. I come from a third world country and for me, always having access to servers and all kind of infrastructure has been very, very difficult. And also in my university years, it, a lot of the concepts were very abstract because universities didn't have compute power. So when when they offered me this show and the possibility to reach a lot of people, I was like, I cannot say no. This is like the perfect show. So Fubar helped me a lot. And I'm very appreciative of my community behind that channel. So we are almost reaching 20,000 subscribers. And yeah, so it's good. <laughs> That's such a cool story. And how it kind of just grew organically from just trying to get adoption really early on. I remember actually, personally, I created content around serverless. And every time I was like, oh, Ubar beat me to it again. <laughs> it's like, it's like, why? Why did she write an article on serverless framework in this exact like SEO? <laughs> so that was kind of a that was kind of a cool thing. So it's a cool journey for me as well, just like in parallel almost. And then now we have this this podcast episode, which is kind of like almost like coming full circle. So that's very cool. Yeah. Um, we yeah. need more content. Um, so if somebody's yeah. listening and wants to do serverless content, just go for it. <laughs> there is a lot yeah. of things to talk about. <laughs> yeah, there's also like the different levels of perspective and experience. And some people, their experience is not like, you know, 10 years or, or five years or 15 years. And they might be coming with fresh eyes with a year of experience. And that content that they write is almost like content that as you get more experience, it becomes harder and harder exactly. to like remove the jargon. And there's like a area for every level of expertise. So I totally agree. Go write content. <laughs> yeah, I, I have a podcast in Spanish now uh, with a, with a girl wow. with a lady called Isabel, and she comes from the operations side, and I'm a developer. So it's so fun to have the podcast with her because we have so different perspectives of the world. We are the same age. We have long careers, both of us. So it's so fun to hear someone like whenever we start talking about something, we have two different opposite views on things. And, and I think that's life. Like nobody comes with the same uh, story. So if you are interested in creating content, I will totally recommend you go for it. And uh, don't do it for the views, do it for yourself and do it also, because even if you don't get like hundreds of thousands of views, um, you might 
get a really cool thing in your career that that will help you to get the job you want or to get to unexpected places. If you ask me five years ago what you will be doing in five years, I will tell you I will be the architect of some company because that's been like what I was achieving. I will never tell you I will be a full-time YouTuber <laughs> working for AWS. It's like, what the hell? <laughs> yeah, no, I completely agree with all points. And it's like, I, I can say the same thing for myself going back five years ago. It's like, that's it feels like such a long time. I feel like even like last year felt like it was like three years. So <laughs> I guess like five years is like eight to 10 years. I don't know. But yeah, one thing that you mentioned, which was interesting, um, you started to talk about cloud democratizing um, and the impact on third world countries. What does that look like so far to now? And how do you think that that's going to change? Well, I think that's since the cloud is cloud and the more managed services are there and the more people are talking about these services in different languages with different walks of life, that will impact people in in all around the world, not only in Europe or in the States or in rich countries. Because I, I think the cloud opens that door. It's the door for everybody to pay exactly for what they use, or even if they are a small company to get, or a startup to get access in programs like Activate or, or things like that, that they give you credits for AWS. If you have a startup with a cool idea and some requisites, you, you get nice credits. So that opens the door for a lot of people with ideas to put them into practice and, and make them happen. And, and I've been in the industry for so long and I have seen so many people with amazing ideas, but they could not take it <laughs> upon because they were like, oh, I don't have money to put this anywhere. or I don't know how to do it. Or learning about all these things is so hard. And now with all these managed services, services like Amplify or Lightsail or Lambda, you can do so many things so cheap, so fast, that I think that opens the door for so many people to get into play. And, and then again, languages. I think that's always super important. I started now to do a lot of content in Spanish. As there is a lot of people doing content on serverless in English, I think that I should do that because that's something I like, but I should not do it 100% of my time. And I started to do more content in Spanish because that's an area that there is not much content. And I want people to know about the powers of this. <laughs> so that's another way. Yeah. How have you seen with these podcasts in Spanish? Like, as I've heard this with, I have friends that are non-native uh, English speakers and they speak really good English, same as you, but they, they didn't, they, like the content is not in their native language because it's like everything's in English and if there's like a blocker there, but there's like millions of people that could access it if it was in the right language. So what have you seen once you started making this podcast in Spanish and making more Spanish content? Have you seen, have well, you seen that grow? Like, what does that look like? The podcast in Spanish is doing really well. And I think that comes from many places. First, I think podcast is a kind of a place where people need to connect to you. It's not something like a YouTube video where you're explaining the how. I don't know, Lambda works or how to do is some, that you're showing something very analytical. I think a podcast, you, you want to build a relationship with your audience. You have some internal shows. It's more like a radio show. That's how I see it. So when you do it in Spanish, I do it with my sense of humor, with my craziness. And, and, and Isabel, my co-host, is also a very uh, fun girl. So we have a lot of fun. We are like talking about technology, but it's so relaxed. And, and I imagine a lot of people are washing the dishes and listening to us or walking their dogs and listening to us. And that's the type of connection I like to make in Spanish because I know a lot of people in tech might know English in, in the level that I'm talking in my YouTube channel. Usually it's quite advanced. So usually people can understand that that type of tutorials in my head, no, I imagine, in English. But when it comes for longer format and more conversational things, I think if English is not your native language, you either get bored or you don't follow the jokes or you don't follow, you don't understand 100%. So I think there is worse having something in your native language really helps. And I think the whole Europe team 
in AWS of developer advocates, we have been really taking upon that and creating podcasts in German, in Italian. Now there is in Portuguese, in Spanish. So we are trying to cover those those places where there is no long format in the native language for a lot of people. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, I, I'm like I'm super idealistic. So I like I think about like once. There is content. I wish I spoke another language. That would be nice because I would I would do the same thing. It's just like once once every like once serverless and, and cloud spreads to like every country in the world and and everyone has access to internet and you know, healthcare and all the other facets that you know obviously we need infrastructure wise. We do whatever we can from our space. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I luckily I'm not anybody's doctor because I'm phobic for blood, so I think I will stay in my cloud space. <laughs> okay. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. Same here. So. <laughs> okay. And then, um, yeah. Let's 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 switch directions here and let's get um, let's let me get to some other questions I have, which is you've talked about this a bit, but I guess maybe if there's any other nuances we didn't touch on. What does your day-to-day life look like as a developer advocate? Are there, there are other things that you do other than content creation? Or well, does that look like? nowadays, as an online developer advocate, I focus online communities. So I work with some communities. For example, now I'm working with the organization of the AWS CDK. They have a conference coming up and they have the CFP open. So I'm helping them and things like that, that are not kind of <laughs> communities that are, don't have a physical location. <laughs> so that I like to do a lot, try to help the users and try to help the organizers as much as I can. I write for Free Code Camp. I work a lot with that organization as well. So that's part of my job. Then listening to what the community have to say. I spend a lot of time reading Twitter and different blogs and newsletter and try to get a feeling of how the community is and what is interesting from them and where there is problems and and try to grasp that either to create content about that topic or then to send it to the product teams and say, hey, people are complaining about this. (laughs) You need to do something about it. So that's also part of my job. And then I help also internally in AWS to other content creators that wants to learn some skills that I have. So there is a lot of things to do. I try to say no a lot. And this year is one of my top goals to say no, because last year I was almost dying because there is so many opportunities <laughs> that you want to take them all. But mostly those, those are the things I do. But content creator creation takes most of my time. Okay. Yeah. Something you said there, which is like learning to say no more often. I think that's like something that everyone struggles with. How have you got better at that or Mm, any advice? I've been really trying to think a lot. And I think that's something we are doing as well in the team. And that helps because when your management is aligned to that, then that helps more than you think that you should say no. And then you're like, oh, I will never reach my numbers or my goals. But then if management is aligned, that helps a lot. But say no to focus on the important things. So try to understand what is what is where you want to put value. So for me, it's the online community, it's, it's, the, it's the content I create online. So where things come out from that space, then I have a choice to do. Like, okay, they invite me to this conference to speak. Is this something that I'm really will impact my strategy, my long-term goal that is to uh, work my, with my online communities? And in most cases, it's no. So then it takes me a lot of effort and say, hey, sorry, I cannot do it. <laughs> uh, one thing I learned, it takes less uh, pain when I have someone else in mind and I have someone else, um, for example, if they invite me to speak at the talk, uh, what I do is I try to forward them to another woman in whatever is, is internal or external. So maybe somebody else gets the opportunity to speak or maybe to forward it to another person that I know has a lot of potential, but maybe didn't got a lot of opportunities. So that makes me feel good. And then I don't feel bad of saying no. <laughs> so I always try to find like what is the best way to reject something without like hurting anybody's feeling on the way. But it, it takes a lot of effort. <laughs> but I think it's good for everybody. I think that's great advice. And something that I guess like getting uh, changing directions again, I know it's like a, I would be a bad driver in this conversation. But Luckily, we are um, not in the road. So <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> when it comes to serverless changes, AWS changes, virtual conferences, reInvent 2020 was online. 
no networking experience, similar to I've heard that that complaint a few or a few times now. But thinking about the technology side, and then maybe we can get into the networking side after, is what changes have you seen come out of reInvent 2020 that are impactful for serverless? And yeah, what do you think I that think looks like the, going forward? The announcements that were around serverless, they were pretty interesting because they were really showing that Lambda and the serverless ecosystem are pretty mature because there was no like mind-blowing announcement. And I think that's good. You don't see mind-blowing announcements on is 3 or EC2s. They're stable services that have great announcements for customers with issues to solve their issues with great announcements. But I think Lambda now has, and, and, and the services around it, has become to a place that it's stable and it's growing and it's trying to remove all the limitations that we had around it. I remember when I started talking about serverless in 2016, that you have this thing like Lambda, and then you talk about what Lambda could do, and then you have a slide what Lambda could not do. And that slide was quite full of bullet points. Nowadays, I think the only thing that Lambda cannot do, and I think I hope it never does, is run for more than 15 minutes. But even though that increased from the original amount of time that Lambda could run, so now you can do crazy amount of things with Lambda. And I think in reInvent, that was proven. All the limitations that were removed, the the storage, the memory capabilities, the extensions, the container base, so many announcements came that maybe didn't hit all the customers and say, oh my God, this is like, I needed this in my life because customers in general are very satisfied with Lambda. And now there are some other customers, like for example, with the container-based images and that there were some customers that didn't, uh, were not able to jump into the Lambda train because they have all their operations and all their structure organized around container deployment. And they say, come on, zip packages are very weird. I cannot adopt that. And now we allow them to jump into the train with us. And the same, for example, with machine learning. Well, we needed a bigger a bigger uh, capacity and we needed external storage or we needed more memory. And now we give you that. We give you the connection to the file system. We give you the, the 10 gigabytes <laughs> of memory. We give you the container deployment. So now you can run machine learning things in Lambda functions. So I think that's something I was very happy to see during reInvent that Lambda is a mature service. And I think it's just now announcing improvements, but nothing that is like mind-blowing. And I think that's good for a service. That's what we want. This is a really interesting perspective because I haven't thought about this at all. And when you just said that, it made perfect sense. The fact that there wasn't groundbreaking, crazy announcements around it just means that we actually got to maturity, which is amazing. Because, yeah, it's just like, yeah, they, they made like one millisecond billing. They did stuff in the background. They and increased I think the memory. That millisecond billing, it's a great announcement because yeah. it's something that in general, the, the cost of Lambda is so low that I don't think like customers were like, oh, but it's such a nice thing to have. Your bills are reduced and the possibility, and I think showing that we can bill you for one millisecond is a great show of how much your Lambda is. It's like, now we can bill you in the millisecond. And I, I love that announcement. <laughs> ah, no, it's so cool because it's like they did it in the background and you know, like the future people that come and start using it will totally take that for granted. I'm not knowing, which is the same thing I've done with all services, to be honest. But thinking about that, when a cloud provider is able, like when AWS is able to do something like that, it means something like there's something underneath that, which is really powerful, which is like you already removed your overhead, but now like the system is getting better automatically under the hood exactly. without any human like interaction there, which is, yeah. Yeah, I think Lambda has improved so much. I started with Lambda and the cold starts, for example, were a big problem. And then Firecracker came. And for me, cold starts are not really a big deal anymore. And for me, it's funny. Every time I talk, let's, let's introduce Lambda, and somebody says in the audience, but what about cold starts? That's not a problem in AWS anymore, unless you're really, 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 really doing some real-time like critical service that you really, really need the like fine-grained latency. But in the normal things, for 95% of the use cases, cold starts, 
are not a problem. <laughs> and that's something that for improving that, the whole way that the whole Lambda functions were deployed and run needed to change. And, and, and that was a core fundamental change in, in, in Lambda that happened when Firecracker was adopted. And then it's, it's so cool to see how mature the service have come from the early beginnings. So I've been reading this book by Stephen Orban called Ahead in the Cloud. And one thing that he talks about is how sometimes issues will get pushed by service providers or even people that make products or people in the community, uh, individuals, when new technologies are coming. So like, like the thing that he was saying is that, you know, people might be pushing, for instance, like cold start. He didn't say this specifically, but the concept of it is that people may be saying cold start or finding like small nitpicky things, which may not even be the case just because their entire business models have been created around not doing like serverless, for instance. How often do you come across something like that? Well, I think a lot of the things happen for misinformation. I think serverless changed so much that it's hard for people if you are not really using it or you use it maybe two years ago and you remember that to like say that. And then a lot of things are there. But AWS, uh, at least I cannot talk for other cloud providers, but I can talk for AWS. Everything comes from customer feedback. So if we hear a lot that pro- people have problems with cold stars, they have problems with that, we will fix it. We will do whatever it takes to fix it if that's the main problem that the platform has. And that's what happened. And the same with other issues or problems or needs that customer had. The community uh, say something and the company is listening. And, and I think that's one of the nice things of working in this organization, that everybody within the organization has power to request new features in the name of customers and share feedback that customers is, is complaining about something or, or saying that they need something. So I think that's something that that's why it's so fast pacing the company and new features come every every day because the features come from customers and the requirements come from customers and so one thing might be broken today and in two months might be fixed <laughs> and that workaround that you made is gone <laughs> exactly and that happens to everybody yeah. i remember when i was uh developing outside AWS and before step functions came, we built this whole structure on how to orchestrate uh, uh, Lambda functions. And we had so much work done around it. And then in the middle of the process, step functions were (laughs) born and we throw like 50% of the code of our application. (laughs) It was like, yeah, we spent five months working on this. This goes to trash because step functions are so way cooler. And that's something you need to learn to live with it, like adopt whatever the cloud provides because it will be cheaper, it will be faster, and it will be maintained by someone else. Yeah, oh, that's <laughs> a, I'll write that down so we can talk about that in a second. Something that you talked about just a second ago was culture of, almost like culture of sharing knowledge at AWS and how anybody can kind of voice an idea. How does a company foster that type of culture where everyone feels empowered? Because like everyone has ideas, of course everyone has ideas, but then actually getting those into, you know, where people see it and then people actually do something with it. How does AWS handle that? Well, I think there is two different things. I was talking about first the customer's requests and there is a process to submit requests for new features into services inside AWS. We can do that. And that will arrive to the right place. (laughs) So you don't need to know everybody. And then about the ideas you have, there is also a process if you have a crazy idea on how to take it into action. I have never gone through that path, but a lot of the services that we have today were born from someone having great ideas. So there is a process for that as well. So it's a company that really loves innovation and embraces it. So Yeah, I think I, I heard, a, I heard uh, Jeff Bezos talk. I didn't hear his talk, but I, heard, I I read it in a book that in 2004, he said that Amazon was a software company, which was really interesting because at the time, I think they said the the audience was like half Walmart and half, I think, Microsoft. And so mm-hmm. Microsoft was like a real software company that put stuff on like CD-ROMs. And then Walmart was like in-store. And then I think he said the thing that differentiates us from our competition is being able to put stuff, how we put stuff into a box and get it to the door. And that is all software. And it's really crazy to just like step back and think about the progression of, of kind of seeing that now. And I've heard people start talking that way now. It's like 
all the digital transformations that happen and that buzzword, but more of just every company is starting to, to you know, incorporate some level of software. Have you seen that as well on your end? Well, I've been in software all my life, so I, I never work in any company that didn't have software. <laughs> so I think nowadays, in, and more after this global pandemic, even companies that were not interested in software, they need to find a way to do e-commerce or have even a social media presence. So software is everywhere, and it can be for selling your product or to manage it in a more smarter way or <laughs> less, uh, more efficient, we can say. So I see that technology is becoming like, I would not say a commodity, but something that everybody needs to have. It's like a human resource department, an IT department. It can be your main product, like some organizations like Facebook. Well, they are purely technology company or other organizations that have it as a very strong support thing, like, I don't know, Walmart or other supermarkets that are selling online a lot as well. So I think everybody has technology and, and, and need it for, for working to nowadays. And so I will not see that change in the future. I, I think it will go even stronger i guess like when i'm thinking about like uh kind of the makeup of a company and having people that are on the team that that understand the it side there's been kind of a progression right in, in what that it staff looks like from since since aws has kind of empowering with out having to worry about the overhead less database administrators less op- pure operations of, of managing servers how, how have you seen like teams change with the emergence of serverless? I would say that it's not less people managing databases and less people managing operations. I think it's people doing smarter things and things that computers cannot do. For example, for databases, making a good DynamoDB table design is super hard. So there is still space for database administrators. <laughs> they might not need to know how to migrate from one database provider to another and keep the load and make it that doesn't break and fall, but they might need to learn how to handle Dynamo or Aurora or whatever new cool databases are out there. Uh, the same for operations. I don't think serverless means no operations. I think it means different operations. So everybody in the IT industry needs to learn new things. And I think that's something that happens to developers, that happens to operations, that happens to database, that happens to everybody. You need to learn the new skills, but that doesn't mean that you cannot do the core of what you learn. Databases are databases, but maybe instead of taking care of your server and waking up at two in the morning because the SQL server died, now you can't sleep and you go to work and you look at your nice Dynamo and you try to optimize it and help other teams to get started in a better way and have a nicer work life because you slept all night and you don't need to work extra hours fighting the, I don't know, Black Flyer load in your database. So I think there is work for everybody. It's just uh, you need to learn new skills. Yeah, no, that's a that's a perfect way to kind of summarize that. It's like uh, everyone has transition constantly. And we're having to learn. It can definitely be tiring. Oh yeah, <laughs> at some point. Oh my gosh, where it's like you know, right. <laughs> but I think there it comes to many things. I think having an organization that enables learning, so you don't need to do it at your personal time. And think that's something very broken from the IT industries that they pretend that you have open source project and you do uh, work in your free time and you do this and that. No, (laughs) you should do do all those things in your work time. And if you want, you can do it. If you have those, that as a hobby, I'm not arguing about people's hobbies, but I think it should not be considered as something you need to have in order to progress in your career. Or if a organization decides to transition from old school databases to Dynamo, that you should spend that time on your personal time to learn. No, organizations need to have those systems in place because that's the way to retain employers, employees and also to make everybody happy and feel like welcome in, a, in, in our organization. And then the everybody, every employee should be okay with learning new things and getting out from your comfort zone. And I think that's one of the things that universities need to be better at teaching at 
people how to learn instead of teaching people concept because the future is about learning new things. Things change all the time. So <laughs> there's many aspects on this thing. Yeah, no, that's a really important note is like how, how to learn is probably, yeah, that's probably the thing that I didn't get taught at, at school was like how to go about the process of using, you know, Google and, and the, the wide array of resources that the internet has to then learn literally anything. And then I can tie it <laughs> um, to our yeah. conversation in the beginning. If you have a blog or a YouTube channel and you learn in public, you kill two birds in one stone, you learn. And you need to learn in a way that it's um, kind of more consistent because you need to teach it to someone else. And then at the same time, you build your brand to get better recognition in your shop and find better shop opportunities. So we can go full circle here. <laughs> yeah, no, that's it's really interesting. I talked to I talked to somebody else, uh, Hero, who's an AWS community hero um, as well. There was something similar. It was like learn in public. And, and I've seen that too, where it's like, when you're putting content out there from whatever starting point you're at and it goes like twofold, it helps with like your career, you can point back to it. And it also helps more like concrete uh, concepts. And if your employer is not, you know, paying for that learning and you're having to do it and then you make the articles about it, somebody will probably hire you. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> that, that will give you that. That's a great yeah. walking CV. You know, if you have a great thing that showcase a lot of your learning it's a great way to get higher in a company that maybe enables you to do that in the work time because i think at the end of the day having an internal person that can do public speaking and can share like their love for technology is always great or then you can have a side business you can do i did for example a lot of online courses and some people write books or you can monetize that learning somehow so you don't need to do it for free because it's time that you're investing. Yeah, absolutely. And something that's kind of, I guess we're coming to, we're coming to time here. So I told you <laughs> I can speak for hours. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think if, you know, me too. <laughs> so I guess like when it comes to the future, uh, Marcia, what are we, what are we seeing? Like how are things going to change? Is it just more serverless? Is it more maturity? I don't ask me that. That's so hard. For <laughs> At least for this year, for me, I want to focus a lot on my Spanish side. I want to, I started a new YouTube channel in Spanish. So because I was publishing mixed content in my, in my FUBAR channel, but it doesn't make sense. My audience in my FUBAR channel is from everywhere else. So now I created a Spanish channel and that I want to start uh, putting effort there. And well, I already putting effort there. So I will continue rowing that with my podcast. So I want to start creating new communities and, and not forgetting my, <laughs> my FUBAR people there. They will still get a couple of videos a week, but, but I want to start also helping people from the Spanish language to get into AWS and start looking at serverless and, and thinking about the cloud as a friendly place. <laughs> That's awesome. But yeah, so I guess we're coming to close. Uh, how can people get in touch with you? And do you have anything that you want to promote? Anything that are coming up for you personally? Well, I think the best way to find me is in Twitter. I think you're going to leave all the links for me in the description box of the episode. So you can find me there. And there you can find all the other links to find my YouTube channel and my podcast or whatever you're interested. I have message opens in Twitter. So I'm always happy to, to chat with people. So... Yeah, and, and if you have not seen my channel, go and take a look. There is over 300 videos on serverless, and I have quite many coming. <laughs> Fantastic. All right, well, I think that does it. Uh, thanks again for joining me on the podcast, Marcia. Thank you for inviting, and this was a fun conversation. I hope people in the audience also had fun. Listen, us going around <laughs> in a bumpy <laughs> road. <laughs> yes, yes, exactly. All right. Well, those, to those listening, this has been the Talking Servals podcast from, uh, with Ryan Jones. If you like our show and want to learn more, uh, check out TalkingServerless.io or please leave us a review on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Podcasts. And of course, join us next time as we sit down with another fantastic guest. Mm-hmm.